Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Ian Montgomery of Label Sessions talks to Carol Schmeichel. Carol is a brand strategy leader with over 25 years of experience in her field, behind several Canadian behind several Canadian brands like Satin and Bell, before turning to unifying finance and fintech with the Alberta Treasury Branches, or ATP Financial, as the SVP in reputation and brand. Over to Carol and Ian. Best way of getting these things started is having you tell our listeners a little bit about you, your background, and a little bit of your story. Well, thank you for having me. I um, I like to refer to myself as a, uh, I've, I've been in the world of marketing and communications and crisis management for 35 years, but where my heart really lies is in the area of brand strategy, as well as leading teams. And so after a 35-year career doing that across Canada with uh, amazing brands uh, in a plethora of industries, a year ago, I made the decision to retire from my day job. And and what that actually means is it's really about rewiring and right now I occupy my days uh, wonderfully in mentoring and coaching and volunteering and doing a lot of reading and really trying to uh, dabble at uh, creative writing and writing a murder mystery. Oh, very cool. I wasn't going to go there, but let's go into the murder mystery first. Tell me more about that. I love murder mysteries. I love suspense, uh, both in movies and in books. And, and I've done a lot of business writing. But I really enjoy writing. And as I made the decision to retire, I thought, so what am I going to do uh, in the next adventure of my life? And I thought, I'm just going to uh, dabble in, in writing a book. And so I've taken some master classes, uh, including one with Margaret Atwood, um, on how to write a book. And I, I started one when I first retired. And I kind of walked away from that. And I started another one that I'm quite excited about. Um, I realize I need to be more disciplined though. I do need to wake up and at least write for 15 minutes a day. And I kind of write when I feel like it. And I tend to write um, when when I have some unexpected downtime, but I'm, I'm excited about the story. And the other night I kind of in my mind stumbled upon how it's actually gonna end. So I'm a third of the way in and now I know the ending and I have to fill in the middle. But it's But it's a really great creative exercise for me that I'm enjoying and and enjoying as well as being frustrated by. What inspired you to get to that point? Are there things that you've read and you're like, oh, I could do something better than that, or I just enjoy spending my time reading these things? What was the trigger? Yeah, I enjoy reading these these things. They they completely get me lost. I've read a lot of business books over my over my tenure and business books are great and they're very educational and informative, but a murder mystery to me just takes me completely out of my realm of of the everyday and normalcy and just puts me in a whole different world. And, you know, authors that can do this beautifully really get you lost in a character in a different time and space. And that's what I love about it. Pretty cool. I'm going to look forward to reading this now. Okay, I'll send you one. But we'll go back to the business stuff. So like, when you talk about the the brand strategy and sort of passion, how do you get started in that world? Like, what is it? What was the spark that made you go? This is what I really care about. This is what I'm good at. This is what this is where I'm going to spend my time. I came upon my love of advertising and knowing that this is what I wanted to do in my career way back when the Blue Jays won the World Series for the first time. I was living in Toronto. I've never been a huge baseball fan, but I was watching the game. And as soon as Carter hit the home run and the Blue Jays won, you cut to a commercial, and it was a Coca-Cola commercial. And it was celebrating. It was a song. It was very musical. It was very animated. And it was all about the Blue Jays' whip. 
So think about how many years ago this is. It was in the 80s. And literally there was somebody standing in the box with the videotape if they won and the videotape if they lost. And what it did for me in that moment, it was like, oh my God, how did they do that? This is so in the moment, beautiful. 40 years ago, 40 years ago, it made me think, wow, if, if advertising, if marketing can instill that excitement in somebody and actually influence behavior for the better, I want to be a part of it. And so that's what started me on the journey towards advertising. What started me learning how to love brands and what a great brand is, is uh, when I was at Toronto at a multinational agency that I spent 26 years at, I had the opportunity to work on General Motors and their Saturn brand. And sadly, Saturn no longer exists. GM stopped investing in it. But what they did is they reimagined the brand from the ground up, including not only the polymer side panels and everything you might recall from the advertising, they had a unique relationship with United Auto Workers, so a union relationship. Every person that touched the brand, from the agency to salespeople to mechanics, went down to Spring Hill, Tennessee, and went through three days of cultures and values training. And again, this was in the 80s, way before any of these exercises became the norm about the culture of an organization and purpose. And I had an incredible client at General Motors at the time and an amazing brand and Saturn, uh, like in terms of uh, CSR, before it even became a buzzword, was going out and building playgrounds and communities and inviting their owners to uh, drive in theaters and making a big deal when you bought the car and allowing for a 30-day money-back guarantee. They were doing things that had not been done in the category or not been done in in North America. And it made me realize what it takes to be a great brand and to sustain a great brand. And it's probably one of the pinnacles of my career was working on that brand. How does a brand start that journey? How do they go like, right, we're going to care about this. We're going to do it. Does it start with a a big come to Jesus moment and we're all going to get together and just start doing this thing? Or does it happen more organically? Or is it or is it both? Like, I'd love to hear a bit of your experience there in the agency world and the corporate world. I think it's both. And in the case of Saturn, they very wisely, they were part of General Motors. The brand started uh, because they were really losing share to Asian imports, which were all about uh, quality, reliability, durability, QRD. And so what they said is, if we really want to compete, we have to start from the ground up. And they pulled together a team of 100 people. And they were told to forget everything that they know and start anew. And so there you take a very established brand being General Motors and creating something new in a vacuum within the organization. So that's one way to do it. The other way, I think the easier way to do it is if you're starting something from scratch. Of course, you have complete control over the culture and the value proposition and, and the voice of the brand. I think it's much harder for an established brand to do it, but it absolutely can be done. And it does come with a come to Jesus moment. It's either we are not achieving the results that we need or the competitive set or the landscape or the consumer needs have changed. And brave brands will do way more than create a splashy marketing campaign. They will look at the inside first. They will recognize what the market needs. And sometimes it's a latent need that consumers don't even know that they have. What is the need and how do we best fill that need? And so it is It is a bit of a come to Jesus, but it's about as much learning as it is about unlearning. It makes me think of the, um, it's the Audi slogan, like divorce from the technic thing was like an ad, I forgot where agency it is now, it might be BBH, but they were like doing a, a, a site tour in Germany and someone went, well, what does that mean? And then that became the whole slogan for it and almost created as much like Germany as a brand as it did Audi as a brand around like quality and everyone can rally around that. I think that's the sort of, 
I don't know if it's capturing lightning in a bottle or actually just very diligent and coordinated and structured work, or maybe both. I think the most important thing is that and authenticity has become such an overused word, but it's actually like it's easy to create a really beautiful marketing campaign. It's much harder to create an experience from how you answer the phone to your website to how you onboard staff to how you offboard staff to how you fire people to how you deal with happy customers and really disgruntled customers. Like it's it's actually having the brand permeate every single part of the experience and then using your voice to take that externally. And, and that's where I don't think I know nearly not enough, not enough brands do that well, but the brands that do do that well, do it very well. And how did you find that well being in agency for such a long time before you went into a corporate world? Like, did you, when you were in the agency world, were you saying that, oh, that brand does it well, that brand doesn't, or we can have a bigger influence here because of X, Y, and Z? Or did you find that when you went to the corporate world, what I did some, I'm asking multiple questions in one question here, but like I'm really interested in that bridge between agency and corporate. The first 26 years of my career were spent agency side and not only agency side, but with one agency. And that that's pretty well unheard of. And uh, I was with them in Toronto and Halifax and Calgary and Vancouver. It was an amazing experience. And through that experience, I've worked on tourism and packaged goods and automotive and travel and everything and, and finance and telco, everything in between. And it is that experience taught me what a great brand does and what what a not so great brand does it taught me what a great leader does and what a not so great leader does so it was amazing experience and 10 years ago i went uh into the world of finance and it's interesting because during my 26 years at, at cassette um two industries that i worked on that i wasn't a big fan of from a consumer was uh, telco and finance. Telco and finance are known to be uh, not customer-centric, risk-adverse, not great relationship partners with their suppliers who are suppliers, not partners, um, oligopolies, and really damn right greedy. And so 10 years ago when I made the decision where it's been, it's been a quarter of a century, you're either gonna die here or it's time to uh, explore something new, and this beautiful little uh, Alberta financial institution posted a job for their VP of marketing at the time. And I, um, I fell in love with the brand, even though it was a financial institution. And my friends and my husband said, like, what are you doing? You hate banks. And I said, no, 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 they're not a bank. They're a brand. So I feel that the first 26 years of my career prepared me for the last 10. And uh, ATB being the brand that it was, it, it was a brand first in my mind, and they're I mean, a very successful bank, of course, but they were a brand that knew the importance of delivering an experience and standing apart from the competition and being there when times are tough and when times are great. I've worked at ATB and I remember like being in the office when you like released that ATB story. And I was sat there as a consultant, I'd only been there a few weeks, was like making some slides for a presentation. And I had like saw teams gathering around and the way that that story was rolled out across the business. I use this in a positive way, but it was like, it was vaguely cult. Like <laughs> there were, there was, a, there was this weird, like cult of ATB. And it, like, I think the CEO at the time played a big role in that, but like, it wasn't just a guy at the top of the business, like pushing these things down. It, there was something, there was a little bit of a magic spark there. So most people listening to this won't know who ATB are. So it's probably worth telling a bit of that story about like 
what made ATB so special as a brand. Sure. And, and you know what it does? It does serve with leadership. We had, we still have an incred- incredible CEO, but the CEO at the time um, was probably the most genuine, authentic non-banker. He was a very successful banker and I don't mean to criticize the industry, <laughs> but he was just a real person who could relate to Albertans and customers and employees and he had a vision. And so instead of created a, creating a vision, we created a 94 word story that talked about who we were. And we had a list of 10 ATVs. This is how we, this is how we behave. So, you know, I've, as a person that's attended the Disney Institute and other um, uh, courses, a cult light can be really negative or when it's actually based on something beyond drinking the Kool-Aid and how we treat people. And again, it started from inside. Um, it was it was pretty magic. There's some, there's some things that were special. And I, I guess you've been there, you've ridden that wave, you've seen it. Like, What impact did that have on, it's not just the brand, it's like the, the brand almost was the business. Like, what impact did that have on the employees, the customers, the the results. As somebody who believes it starts from the inside first, it had an amazing impact on employees because it articulated what people already felt about the brand, but it wasn't articulated in that way. So it was a rallying cry for uh, employees, and and not you know not a hundred percent of the five thousand employees loved it. Some who might have been more traditional in their approach. I mean, you know, not every brand is for every person. The, the the people that loved it, loved it a lot and they lived it. And so what happened is the experience that we delivered to customers in, in a pretty low experience category was elevated because people understood what was expected. Employees, team members understood what was expected of them. And and what we saw is from internal engagement to client satisfaction to, to revenue, um, it, it, all, it all grew. And we can't attribute it all to a beautiful 94 word story. There are other market dynamics that were happening at the time, but I would say it was an incredibly powerful uh, demonstration of inside brand, outside brand alignment and understanding the market and what the market needs and delivering on that in a really true to self way. What's the process to get there? Cause it's not just like a wake up in the morning and bash out 94 words and send them out to employees. Like there's, it didn't just happen overnight. How did you get to that point with ATB where you were turning that into something that could be then distilled into something you can communicate to customers so well, as well as internally? So this is probably a year and a half long process. And we started with a purpose statement. You know, I, I, won't, I won't, I remember these things really well, but it started with a purpose statement. And the purpose statement was lovely, but I think too lofty and not hinged on what people team members or Albertans could relate to. So it was, how do we take this sentiment? How do we understand where the market is today? So there was a lot of research that was done both internally and externally. And then how do we try to translate that into something that's true to who we are? We're an 80 plus year old Alberta company, but also very cognizant of what people need of us today and where we think the market is going. And how do we do it in a way that is really ATB like? So it's not a vision mission values. It's not a purpose statement. Let's create a story. Let's create the ATBs. And and so the CEO at the time, Dave, was instrumental in all of that. Every word we put down, so this is a, a writer's nightmare and a writer's dream, was deeply scrutinized by the person who had to authentically deliver it. So a lot of research inside and out, crafting the story, testing the story, crafting the, the work, the internal and external work that would go around it, creating uh expectations of team members. This is how you live the story. This is what it means. So how do we 
I think we gamified it, use that to make sure employees beyond just reading what's expected of them, how did they really deeply understand it? Uh, eventually, it made its way into how we evaluated employees, how we hired uh, employees, and then developing the really fun task of taking that public. So I would say it was probably a year and a half with all of the really exciting parts of Marcom that that go into evolving an already strong brand into something even stronger. What was the hardest point to get as, that you had to go through? Because it, these things are never easy. Like the whole point of these conversations is to be like, this is where I really struggled. This is there's, there'll be people trying to drive these things through organizations today that you always there's the meme of this is great. Oh, hang on, this is a bit hard. This is shit. I'm shit. Hang on, this might be okay. This is great again. Did you experience that? Yeah, absolutely. The hardest part of everything I've done at ATB has been executive buy-in. So even though the CEO, but the CEO wasn't dictatorial. The CEO knew how to listen beautifully. So, you know, the, first of all, you had some people say, if it ain't broke, why are you fixing it? Oh my God, here's another purpose statement or another vision. And don't we, didn't we do one four years ago? And what the fuck? Uh, so, so I would say every step along the way, and, and you know, as a Marcom professional of 35 years, sadly, everybody thinks that they're a marketer because they watch TV and they read ads and, 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 you know, there's an art and a science that goes into marketing. So I would say executive buy-in along the way, Dave, the CEO was very, was very hands-on in a good way, but the rest of the executive team really had to buy in. And, and the executive team, there were four parts to, to the bank, the corporate bank, the business bank, the investment bank, and the retail bank. And just think about how diverse each of those it's all one brand, but each of those deliverables have to be from, from an every man to a very high net worth person. So I would say the struggles were internal, but through the use of data, through the use of relationships, through the use of bringing people along the journey with us, that's how we were able to do what we did. When you went through that, were you looking at this going, this is a lot easier because I've been on the agency side and as being on the agency side, I've had to drive things through with where at the end of the day, we're a vendor and we have slight, we, we, our, our interests are not necessarily always exactly aligned with the organization. Um, or did you find it, did you find that made your life easier? Or did you find it made life harder being on the, uh, the client side of the fence for a change? You know, I, I would say it depends on the individual. And in some ways it was easier because of the credibility that came with it. And in some ways it was harder because marketers are often sometimes perceived as flaky. So so it really did, really depended on the person. It, it's interesting. I think that I was hired and I had 15 interviews at ATB. And the reason I had 15, well, maybe I, I obviously wasn't this short thing, but because my role uh, infiltrated every part of the organization and four different uh, lines of business, corporate business, retail and investment bank, it was really important that they found somebody that could be relatable to all of those people. And when I was interviewed by Dave, one of my 15 interviews, he said, you know, we've stood up very four very strong lines of business, and now we need somebody to come in and put a belt around them and bring them closer together. And we talked about the Virgin, the Virgin model. So whether it's airline, bank, records, all of the, it's still Virgin, right? It's still ATB. Um, but, but I would say that uh, one of the reasons I think I got hired um, was because I wasn't a banker. Um, and not being a banker and instead being a Marcom professional um, ensured that I was able to look outside of the industry 
and tap into my knowledge of psychology and consumers. How does it make you feel when you're not when you're the non-banker there? Sometimes great and sometimes bad, right? <laughs> sometimes great and sometimes bad, and it depends on who the audience is. You know, banking is an amazing industry, and the the uh, the, uh, the intelligence that goes into being a really successful banker. I, I never would demean that, but. But those are two very different parts of the brain that get used to be an outside outstanding banker and an outstanding Markov person. And some people loved it and could relate and and loved the the discussions and the work. And oh my God, how do you guys come up with this? I could never do it. And other people were maybe a little bit more of the traditional, yeah, like yeah, that doesn't really matter, or I could do that. So it was it it, it was it depended on the individual and the audience. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. There's, there's something quite interesting about when you have that mix, you can... Um, I'm a big, I love like Jules Goddard's book on common sense, common nonsense, where the whole idea is everybody pushes into the same direction. You become vaguely homogenized. ACB was like, okay, we, 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 we believe in these truths, but there's also these truths over here that TD or RBC are probably never going to believe in. And then that's what differentiates you. Well, we'll never be able to deliver, right? So, so we also used to say we are just the right size. We are just the right size to be able to steer the ship in a new direction because an RBC or a Scotia or a TD with the magnitude and the international magnitude as well, that's a, that's a much harder ship to steer. So I would also say beyond the CEO, my leader at the time, they were a potent combination of people to help steer this through the organization. What about when you screwed up? Like everybody makes, everyone gets something wrong. You look back at things and go, I wish I'd done that differently. Have you driven a career through that, through that point? Because I'm like, I'm sure there's times in agency world at the sale, there's times ATB, I'd quite like to have that one back again. How have you dealt with that, those setbacks or that adversity? As a lot of people in this industry, I'm probably my harshest critic. So it's very challenging and hard to do that. But but I think it's about, you know, it's number one, it's about don't don't hide this. Oh my God, I, I think I, I know I could have done this better or this went out poorly under my watch. You know, there's a campaign I can think of with ATB and I just fucked it up. Like I was I was the leader on this and it was just like really shitty. And it's about taking ownership, number one, with leaders and with your team. And it's okay, let's dissect this and where, where did I go wrong? Where did we go wrong? And how do we fix that next time? And so many organizations talk about, we celebrate failure. Well, and that's bullshit. Like so many people are afraid to say I screwed up. It happened at ATB. I worked for a culture that um, they didn't, we didn't celebrate failures, but but I, I felt comfortable talking about them and, and acknowledging and being proactive, which is I fucked up on this. And this is what I've learned. And this is what I would do different. You know, I would say that uh, through COVID, what I wish I had done better is leading a team of 90 people is I found COVID really hard and it probably, uh, it did facilitate my retirement two years before I thought I was going to retire. And the reason it did that is leading a team of 90 creative people through COVID from a distance was really hard because you had people that were doing fine and people that were understandably wet puddles on the floor and no way like beyond the screen to be able to relate. And and the world became a really scary place well beyond a virus. 
Um, and, and what I would have done differently, what I, you know, as I coach people now, what I would do differently is there's a fine balance between as a leader, holding people, being empathetic and holding people accountable and people are okay with being held accountable. And I think that I may be uh, skewed a little bit more towards being empathetic to certain people. And what that did to the rest of the team is I think it created, well, that doesn't seem fair. And why do they get to do this when I'm struggling with the same thing? So that's one of the lessons that COVID taught me is people do want to be held accountable. And there is a balance between empathy, which is very important, and holding people accountable. And I'm a big fan of the book Radical Candor. Tell me more about that. Tell me like what you've learned through the, through the course of that, maybe a, a bit of like what you would actually do. What does that mean in terms of holding people accountable, leaning a bit further in that direction from the empathy side of things? Yeah. Um, you know, and so like I said, as I coach people and as I reflect on my career, it is, I, I can look back at moments over the, those two years of COVID where, you, well, it's, you know, it's, it's such a personal thing. Some people that you're empathetic toward really appreciate it and they step up and over deliver. And some people would rather quiet quit. And quiet quitting is a term that literally hurts me in my gut because quiet quitting isn't about balance. Some people have justified, well, it's about finding balance. That's bullshit. Quiet quitting is doing the least amount that you can and mailing it in and still expecting to be promoted and raise and maybe even doing side leaks on the side, which are fine as long as you're not talking, taking away from the day job of your being with the So I think it's, I think it's, you know, understanding who the personality is, um, tailoring your approach to that personality. But at the end of the day, we are paid to do a job. If you can't do that job, let's talk about what the options are if you need to have a leave. But if you're being paid to do the job, then damn, we'll do the job and let's find the balance. But but I think I I didn't know what I was dealing with. I remember my last day of COVID and uh, they said, okay, you're going to go home and work from home for a week and picking up some people's coffee cups and like an apple core thinking, well, this is going to be bad in a week, little, let alone three months. Um, nobody, we didn't know what we were dealing with. And so in that, I was like, we're more on the empathetic side because there was also a lot of uncertainty. But, but now what I would do different is I would say like, we have a contract. Um, I owe you this as a, as your leader, you owe us this. Let's talk really openly. And I'm not going to be afraid to hurt your feelings. I'm in a I'm going to position this in a way that's very respectful, but that ensures that we both know what's expected and we have a shared understanding. So I think that's what I would do different. There's something quite interesting around. We went through this spell of, oh shit, what is happening in the world? And then there was this whole thing around like the war for talent and then brands being soft on performers because they like, couldn't get access talent. Then, they had, well, then we had like the resignation, then we had the layoffs. I think now we're in this sort of weird, messy middle where we don't really know where we're at. Like Canada's really interesting. We have like the news today is we have too much immigration. It's like, well, hang on a minute. A few weeks ago, we were saying we didn't have enough talent. Like, which one is this? I think for a leader in that, it's very easy to get swayed by this is what everybody else is doing. This is what's topical right now. But rather than being like, this is what feels right in my gut or feels like how I've been taught or is the right person for this person with this context like that. I think that's really hard. And I think in a lot a lot of the time, like you can get lost inside your own head, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it has been it has been such a roller coaster. To your point, a year and a half ago, people if you had digital assigned to your name, you were walking out the door making fifty grand more. Easy. It's like like what the heck is that? And three months later, those people were being laid off or you couldn't get a job. And so 
in our in our thirst and quest for the best talent, it was it is really hard. And I find what used to be a five or six year business cycle, these things are happening every six months. Like it's just it's like to your point. Now we have too much immigration. Like it's just it's just and when you and when you take what's happening at a personal level in your in your job, and then you uh, go out a ring, and then you're in your life and with your family, and you go out another ring within Canada, and then you go out even more macro in terms of the world. It's like uh, we're still we're still going through what started with COVID in terms of a lot of uncertainty. And it, it makes me really sad. Um, there are two people that I know personally that love their jobs. I had a 35-year career where I would say 90% of the time, I lo- not every day, but I loved my job. And I think it's really sad that people don't, you spend eight, at least eight hours a day doing this. And people that say that I can leave it at the office, I say, bullshit, you can't spend eight hours. You can't spend a third of your possible hours in a day not loving or not enjoying what you're doing. And don't think that that affects your health or your well-being or your family or your relationships. And then without throwing AI on top of that. Right, right. Especially in this industry, especially in the, in the field of marketing, right? Oh, look, I'm, I'm intrigued what your take on, there's so much stuff on out there about like AI is going to destroy every marketer's job. AI is going to make every piece of marketing average. You, you can basically make a point and justify it, but I'm, I'm curious how, how you feel about, you've gone like through that, that tale of a career that you've loved. How do you take that perspective of what, what is AI going to do to it? What would it have done differently for you if you had it available when you started? So, so you know, because I think people are still trying to learn how to use it, um, the, the, the way I'd like to answer that question is to say in, in my industry, in the Marcom field, so let's not talk about AI at a global perspective and all the horrors and the magic that can come of it in the marketing world. I think it's always about, about balance. And so I think that if AI can automate low value tasks so that really good people can focus on high value tasks. I am absolutely all for it. And today it's called AI. And 10 years ago, it was called marketing automation. Like I know, I know it's different, but it's how do you, how do you automate or use AI in order to do that easy stuff, the AB testing, the, the whatever, but how do you use it for good, not for evil? And I think that that's the position that the world is in right now, which is there's, there's a lot of magic in healthcare and there's a lot of really scary shit because the world is a really scary place right now. I think it's interesting if you like going, I think I've been doing lately is going back and reading stuff from marketers from like the, the, the Ogilvy era. Yeah. And I think you look at like the, the old school craft that went into things. It's actually a lot less effort in terms of. There's, there's more, like, I'd say there's more brain power happening, but it's not happening in the, I'm sitting at a blank sheet of paper and wondering what the hell I'm going to do here. I think it's really interesting of that we've perhaps overcomplicated it and then AI is complicating it further versus, and then because of that, we forget the basics of, I'm guilty of this myself. I've made so many websites where I've got white text and a black background. It's really hard to read. And like you, in the fifties, you wouldn't do black background, white text to put out a magazine or a newspaper ad because it's hard to read and people don't engage in it as much. Like we, I feel we've lost some of that. No, we do overcomplicate it. Like at the end of the day, if you think about what developing a brand and a brand strategy is, it's about identifying a need. It's about finding a way to fill that need better than anybody else can. It's about telling a beautiful story that resonates with people. And it's about making sure that what you say and what you do is completely aligned. Like that's it. That's brand. The brand thing has often been diluted to advertising as well, rather than being like playing through into 
you touched on it earlier in this conversation, the interaction with a customer. So I remember when working at ATB on a thing for um, for this small businesses and farmers, I remember sitting down with a farmer and he was like, I love ATB because they get, like they understand Albertans. So he was like, there'd been a hailstorm that rolled through the prairies, like off season that happens in Alberta because the stuff coming off the Rockies. And he had two banking relationships, one with ATB, one with another big Canadian bank that is blue and I will not name the name. Um, but he, his crops had been destroyed. It was going to damage his like cash flow. He called ATB and the ATB rep went, I'm not really supposed to do this, but my car got damaged in that storm last week as well. Like a big piece of hail went through the windscreen. We'll defer some payments. We'll, we'll get your your um, your business advisor out. We'll, we'll, don't worry, you will be okay. Meanwhile, the other big bet was like payments still due. When you what you say and what you do is fully aligned, and it starts and it starts well before the client experience that you deliver. It starts with the people that you hire, and then the people that you let go, and how, how you actually hire them. And I, you know what is clear. I, I had so many amazing experiences at ATP. We went down to the States and we visited Ampua and we visited Rocket. The well, Rocket more we done uh Ampua and then we went to England and we talked to the Bank of England. Um, like I've had incredible experiences and and through that, like Ampua was a brand that understood, so they're regional, um, that understood the, the, their branch manager, the branch that we visited, managed the pizza shop down the street. <laughs> And, and what they saw in him is a person that deeply believed in client experience. Like I can teach, if you're intelligent, I can teach you anything, but I can't change your DNA and I can't change your culture. And if you're not client centric, I can't all of a sudden make you client centric. You know what I mean? I think that's another thing that stands out is like you spent the time going to see other organizations, how they did it and brought back those learnings and applied it. Um, I think now in like one of the benefits of doing conversations like this is we can spend a lot more time with people who are doing things differently in another in another entity. Ideally, it's better to go and get a plane and go see them and go spend time with them, but we can now do it in a better way without necessarily always having to invest that time that we don't make for ourselves. Um, but I think that's so important when it comes to developing a brand and then applying that brand and building the culture and maintaining it as well. I guess it's like the important piece. Like, how do you make sure that the thing you built 10 years ago still rings true and rings true better 10 years later? Right. And so that's the case of ATB and why we uh, experienced some pushback at the beginning, which is, well, we have a vision statement. Why are we doing this again? Well, because because the world changes, because the market changes, because it's not resonating as well as it should. Like It never went public, but with team members, and if team members can't see themselves in it, they don't know how to deliver it. And like now, I'm sure it's going through like an evolution again, as it should. Who do you like? Who do you look to as like that's a brand I I really admire. That's the organization today that I'm like, wow. If I was if I was like looking for my next career step, I'd want to work for them. So there's a couple of brands that I really love. Uh, one is Airbnb, and I know Airbnb has been in the news a lot lately because not only have they changed the industry, but they're creating pressure on housing and local communities. But what Airbnb did is they. They saw a need. It started literally with an air mattress when there was a conference in California. They saw a need and they 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 changed the industry. And from a personal level, Airbnb has changed the way that I and my family have traveled. And I have seen things and experienced places that I never would have without Airbnb. Um, I've been a visitor. We rent our cottage out on the platform. And, and while I know that there are societal issues that they need to deal with, I think that they shook up an industry in a really 
beautiful way. And I think they also stand by the promise behind their brand. Um, because any time that I've had a pro I've never had a problem, but I've heard about problems, they are there standing behind their brand. And um, their owner is on an exercise or has been recently on an exercise, which is we're not the most user-friendly platform. We're going to make it better. So I love Airbnb. I also love Masterclass. So just as I think finance should be disrupted, travel has been disrupted. I think that the world of education deeply needs, post-secondary deeply needs to be disrupted. I think it's a bastion of what has been, not what needs to be. And so a brand that I love that soared during uh, the pandemic is Masterclass. And it's like, it's kind of like, it's for the very affordable way. It's a bunch of loops. It's a bunch of massive open online courses. There is a nominal, like I think a very uh, value-based fee associated with it. And you get to pick what you want to learn and learn from the best of them and take whatever you want away. And I think that Masterclass is a brand that I'm a really big fan of as well. well I think it's interesting you pick those two brands because they're not legacy established brands or historically, like they've emerged relatively recently, but they now have a lot of the baggage of, okay, how do we sustain this growth? How do we continue riding this trend? What's the unintended consequence of what we've done? How do we, I think the, like the Airbnb founder saying about cleaning fees was a great example of that. He's like, people are so mad about this like some certain hosts are taking advantage of it it's damaging the guest experience we're going to fix that and for the most part i was booking one last night you go and look through them the cleaning fees aren't are no longer a bit of a um a sort of a stick at the end where you go hang on how much we're paying here um so like building that making that all about the guest experience at the same time as looking after the hosts great example I think, I think a legacy, it's funny, it's not even a legacy brand, but the brand that I also really admire is Apple and Apple and their diligence. So what I don't like about Apple is the monopoly that they've created and how they, you know, a couple of years, you got to buy new stuff because it doesn't match with anything else, but that's being, that's in the works. But I had a chance to visit Apple in London, England as well. And what I loved was where some organizations say, we are always going to find a way to yes. What Apple says is there is a hundred no's for every single, for every one yes you get, which means we are, we understand our brand so deeply and in, in, including the optimal amount, and I'm going to get this number wrong, but the optimal amount of time to unopen your Apple box is three and a half seconds because it's, because it's the right amount of anticipation without frustration. Like they are so diligent about design, the beauty of design deliberate friction when you when you lift the lid off the box it's sort of and it's planned and that is that is planned to the nanosecond it, it's a it's a psychologist solution not an engineer's solution engineer look at that looks at that and goes why does it not open very easily like like the whole trend that happened a couple of years ago about un unboxing stuff that comes and it's all over the internet like i don't really care about unboxing anything like whether it be at a watch or be at a piece of makeup but yeah, it was, it was interesting. They created a real experience from everything from opening the box. And um, we end these interviews with like a few more like quick fire questions that are a bit, they're not, not so, not so professional. You travel a bit. What, what makes the best travel companion to you? Well, like my husband, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I travel a lot with my husband. So travel companion would be, um, uh, somebody is, who is a better planner than I am when it comes to travel. Cause I kind of like to show up. Somebody that is, advent is adventurous and puts, pushes me out of my comfort zone. And somebody that uh, just likes to sit in a town square and watch people over a lovely beer or a glass of wine. Sounds like an ideal travel companion to me. I don't plan either. So what's the, what's the song or album or piece of music that you keep going back to listening to? Hey Jude. 
I don't know. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a song. I think it's a really beautiful song. I think the Beatles were absolutely incredible. And it's just like a an earworm in my head. So my, my new son-in-law laughs because anytime he turns around, I'm humming this. I don't know why. I'd have to I'd have to dissect that with a psychologist. So it's not an embarrassing one, so you're good, don't worry. Right. Okay, on that note, on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? Yeah, I think I'm a six and a half. Why do you give yourself six and a half? Because I think I think differently. I think I do things that aren't necessarily expected. I think that I come across outwardly as, you know, calm and professional and had this, you know, very easy to follow career. But I think behind all of that, there's a little bit of weirdness. And I think I'm weird is unusual to me is I think that I'm also weird because I really stand by my principles. And I don't know if a lot of people do that anymore. And, you know, somebody, somebody just got hired. So I, I'm, I'm, I will never go back to full time. I love what I'm doing, but uh, somebody I know got hired in a very senior role and it's a person that I really don't respect. And somebody said, well, oh my God, what if, what if they needed marketing advice that I thought, and I, immediately it's like, no, like, no, I, you know, I, 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 life is too short to not spend it on brands or with people that I truly learn and, and grow from. And, and I don't, I don't want to say that a lot of people aren't like that, but but I think when it comes to business, not enough people are like that. I think I think it's interesting. Of I think there's a there's a there's a there's camps of whatever pays the bills, does a thing, tick the boxes, play it through. There's another world which is like I actually just don't care. And if I don't care enough, or I don't want that enough, then you're not going to bring your best self to it. So like, hopefully, I hope that isn't a weird trait, but. Let's try and let's let's try and make it a normal one. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, exactly. When I said when you know my like one of the words that I define weird with is unusual or or unexpected, and I and I and I think that that's part of the problem with the world right now is we need to be truer to what we believe in and maybe more vocal as opposed to like our society has become really afraid to speak up if it if it doesn't seem to hit the boxes of a majority. I think that's the, that's the best thing about having you on this platform, Carol, is you'll speak your mind and you can tell people like. How you see it works and people are like free to take that or or, or not so um thank you so much for um taking the time to record this conversation um and i'm really excited to have you on the platform for label sessions and now we'll do some great work together great it was a pleasure so concludes another episode of label sessions presents be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice and of course start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com